Well, someone that I know uh, was looking at a church to join, nowhere near here, uh, somewhere on the other side of the country. And you know what you do when someone sort of mentions a church to you, they're thinking about joining. You Google it, don't you? That's uh, what the normal thing is to do now. Uh, you Google it. And uh, I came across their statement of faith. And amongst some other slightly strange and incredibly specific uh, things in their statement of faith, I found this about the Trinity. It said, um, uh, this is what it said, the egg is comprised of three parts, the yellow yolk, the whitish part, and the shell. Despite these three substances, the egg is not three, but one. Likewise, we believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God, but made of three persons. Hence, they are one in Trinity. Now, I was already thinking about this, this question, and it got me thinking, is that right? Is God like an egg, comprised of three parts? You know, the Father is the yolk, the Son is the white, and the Spirit is the shell. You put them together and you get one egg. You know, that's it, Trinity solved, sorted, you know, all those debates for thousands of years, all sorted with an egg. But the thing is, it's not that simple, is it? Which is ironic, because the reason it's not that simple is that God is simple. Not that he's easy to understand, but the word simple in theology means that he's undivided. That he's one substance, not three substances. Now don't hear me wrong, he is three persons, but one being, one substance. So I'm not here denying the Trinity, don't worry, that's what the talk is about this evening. In fact, I'm defending it. And I want to share some things with you that I found helpful and stretching over the past few months. And it helped me to stand a bit more in awe of God as I've been getting my head around them. So let me just start off with some health warnings. First of all, we've got 20 minutes, okay? We're not going to get our heads around the whole Trinity in 20 minutes. And uh, one, uh, we're just going to look at one aspect, and the danger of looking at one aspect of the Trinity is that you end up, you sort of think about all one way, and the danger is you sort of swing the pendulum far away from the other side, and sort of swing uh, back and forth between errors. This talk will not tell you everything you need to know about the Trinity, and if you want to know a bit more, I'm happy to point you into some other places. That's health warning number one. Second health warning, we are on a bit of a minefield here. Um, with the Trinity, I'm praying that I don't misspeak this evening. It's very easy to say something heretical when we're dealing with such big matters. Nothing I'm planning on saying this evening should be controversial. I'm not rewriting the Trinity or redefining it. This hopefully will just be an explanation of some of the less spoken about parts of orthodox theology of the Trinity. So if it sounds like I'm saying something wrong, apologies, that's probably me misspeaking. Third health warning, this evening will be a bit more cerebral than usual, a bit more to do with your brain. The aim, though, is not to puff us up and make us feel proud and clever. That's one of the dangers, isn't it? Nor am I trying to make out myself as being uh, clever or anything like that. The danger is, though, if we never look at this kind of thing, then we're left in ignorance, aren't we? Not even trying to grasp things that God has revealed about himself. And it will also leave us vulnerable to attacks from false teaching and false teachers if we don't start to look at these sorts of things. So if anything, I'm hoping this evening will humble us and remind us that we're creatures with finite minds and that actually there are things about God that are hard to think about. I'm also not claiming to have my head fully round this, but I thought it would be helpful to say a few things uh, that will set our thoughts about God a bit higher. So first of all, that's why God is not an egg. <laughs> because God doesn't have parts. 
Okay, that's what we're going to talk about this evening. God doesn't have parts. That's why he can't be an egg. So God doesn't look like this pie chart. That one. There we go. You know, we've sort of got a bit of God the Father, a bit of God the Son, and a bit of the Spirit. That's really the sort of egg idea, isn't it? There's a shell part, there's a white part, there's a yolk part. Put them together, and you get a whole egg. But no, actually, the Bible teaches us that each person in the Trinity is fully God. They're not just a part of God that you sort of can put uh, into a diagram like that. Nor is it that each person has a different part of God. So it's not like the Holy Spirit is the spirit part, and the Father is the just part, and the Son is the loving part. Actually, all of the Trinity, all the persons in the Trinity, actually have all those things together. All of them are all of those things. But it's also not that in the Trinity they've sort of just all got access to something, to uh, sort of access the godness of God. It's not like those attributes are something separate and the sun sort of has access to it. A bit like a shared bank account, you know, they sort of keep going in and getting the, the money out. It's not like they share the attributes of something separate than themselves. Because the danger of that is that actually you end up with a fourth person in the Trinity, that one in the middle, which is actually more God than the ones on the outside. Okay? So it's not that. Nor is it like a sort of Russian doll. You know, the spirit being part of the son who is part of the father, or any other combination of that. The Son is in the Father, we read that in Scripture, and the Father is in the Son. Jesus said both those things, but it's a mutual thing. It's a reciprocal thing. It's not supposed to express the idea that the Son is merely a part of the Father, or vice versa. And the same is, of course, true of the Spirit. Nor, this is my uh, Lionel Richie diagram, um, it's not that they're sort of once, twice, three times God, by the time, you know, they've all got their own bits, and when you put them together, you sort of get uh, God who's three times as powerful as either person in the Trinity. Um, you know, you're once, twice, three times a deity. Um, doesn't really uh, work. Because the authority, the power, the love that each one has is the same. It's not another one that they sort of add on. Actually, it's the same. And normally those attributes are attributed to the Father as the source, but not in a way that makes him superior to the other two. Again, the danger if you make something else the source is that actually then uh, you struggle to get your head around how that's not God. So it's attributed to the Father, they share those things. It's not like they sort of compound them and each have their own. All of them have them in common. And the same is true to God's attributes. So it's not, again, that, you know, you could split up his attributes as parts of God. Sometimes you hear them played off against each other. So you sometimes hear in that argument, you know, God is loving, but he's also just. As though there's a sort of loving part of God and a just part of God, and they're sort of having a fight or in competition with each other. But that's not the case. And it's not uh, even that, you know, two of them are in competition and one wins. No, his attributes are not parts of him that compete. He is 100% fully and maximally those things. Now, if you wanted me to show that in a diagram, 
the tricky thing is that there is no easy diagram to show all those things. You could end up with something uh, like this, but the danger is then, as I've said at the beginning, the danger is that you swing the pendulum to the other side. And actually what you'd end up with is something that causes uh, problems uh, at the other end. Actually, the Bible hasn't given us diagrams, it's given us words. And whilst the picture may paint a thousand words, the Bible has several thousand words to tell you these things, um, and not a picture. But the danger with this one is that you start to sort of slip into something called modalism. That God isn't three persons, he's just sort of the same person with three hats on, which is also wrong. You sometimes get that idea of, you know, he's a, he's a father who's a part-time policeman and a part-time fireman. You know, so sometimes he's got one hat on, sometimes he's got another same guy. But no, God is all three, all the time. Not just as parts, but as persons. So in Jesus' baptism, for example, we see all three uh, at once. So it's not just one guy with three hats on. But actually, it, it's something far more complicated. The best diagram to the test of time is this one. Uh, which is, you know, the Father is not the Son, um, the Father is God. But again, you get that idea sometimes that the bit in the middle is something separate. So there's no perfect uh, diagram, but partly those diagrams help us see what he's not, rather than what he is. So that's what he's not. But what if we took those things? What if God did have parts? What if we could sort of think of him as sort of being split up in those different things? Well, it would mean then that God could be divided. If something has parts, you can split the parts apart. And the Trinity cannot be divided. You can't have a father without a son, or a son without a father. So you can't split those two apart, otherwise it makes no sense. You cannot have God without the Spirit of God. Because where would his Spirit be? Each part of the Trinity, in that sense, implies the others. You can't divide God. Secondly, if, we, if God was in parts, his parts could be changed. If God has parts that weren't fully God, then they could be subject to change. A bit like a full army might be invincible, but if you break it into parts, you could beat it. If you have bits of God that aren't God in his entirety, then you could do things to them that you could not do to God. But we know that God doesn't change. That's in Malachi 3.6. He doesn't change who he is. There is no variation or shadow due to change, it says in James 1.17. But if he was made of parts, then there could be. Because you could change the bits that were sort of smaller than God. Thirdly, if he was made of parts, then he would be a composed being. If he's composed of parts then there must be a composer. Someone who put him together the way that he is. He would not be the first cause. He would not be the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Because something or someone would have had to have put him together in the way that he is. But God is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's not put together by someone else or something else. So if you think back to this morning, we had the wall, didn't we? I didn't know that was going to happen. But a wall of three stones has to be built by someone, doesn't it? Whereas just one stone doesn't have to be built. So he's not composed, so he doesn't need a composer. And then finally, if he were made up of parts, he would be a dependent being. If he was composed of parts, he would be dependent on his parts. 
he would need his parts to be fully God. But if you think about who God is, God doesn't need anything, does he? That's part of who God is, that's part of what we define God by. But if he has parts, then he's not self-sufficient. He's not self-existent. He actually has to rely on something else. He has to rely on his parts. But he doesn't rely on anything else. So Romans 11, 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Or Acts 17, 24 and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not dependent on anything. If he had parts, then he would be. So, final point, what do we know about God in this area? Well, he is not made up of parts. He is simple in the sense that He's not made up of parts. He is one in essence, one in being, and fully everything that he is. That goes for his persons and it goes for his attributes. He is not in part anything. So he is all holy, all powerful, all loving, all wise, not just a bit of those things. And in fact, those things are not just... um, uh, not just about God, but God is those things in Scripture. Okay? He's so much those things that He is them. See how this is getting deep. So He's not just loving, God is love. He's not just holy, He is holiness. God is not just wise, He is wisdom. He's not just righteous and just, He is righteousness and justice. And that's actually what you find in scripture. So in 1 John 4, 8, God is love, it says. And the spirit in Romans 1 verse 4 is not just the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of holiness. Christ is referred to not just as wise, but as wisdom in 1 Corinthians, as we've been seeing in life groups. And also in 1 Corinthians, Christ is referred to as not just righteous, but righteousness. And not just holy, but holiness. God is all those things. All that is in God is God. Okay, I'll say that again. All that is in God is God. Otherwise, love, for example, would be something other than God. Which you think, oh, that's fine, isn't it? But if God is love, but love is not God, it's not in God, then actually, by what definition is love? Where do we find love? Well, love would have to be something eternal, wouldn't it, if God is love? But if it was outside of God, then there'd be something other than God that was eternal. But no, all that is God, is in God, is God. And that means he's not dependent on those things for his definition. He's not dependent on some other source of what is holiness, what is love, what is power, because God is those things. And love can't just be part of God because God isn't made of parts. That's what we've been seeing. But the interesting flip side that with those attributes and that they're all true of God and that God is all those things is that it means that all of them affect each other. And this is where if you, if you like sort of uh, struggle to get to sleep you can start to put some of these together. 
long does it send you to sleep, but because it's so sort of mind-bogglingly big, it will, you know, uh, tax you, your brain to go to sleep. But it means, for example, then, that if we say that he is love and he is holy, uh, and holiness, then his love must be holy, and righteous, and wise, and eternal, and unchangeable, because they're all part of God. His holiness must be loving, and righteous, and wise, and eternal, and unchangeable. And his wisdom must be righteous, and holy, and eternal, and unchangeable. And not just a bit, fully. Does that make sense? So all of them go together, all of them. So it's not a competition between those things. Actually, God is all of those things all at once. And that is true of the persons of the Trinity. But it's not true of an egg, is it? So God is all those things. All persons of the Trinity are all those things. But if you think about the the egg, well, actually, the shell is different from the white, isn't it? In that the shell is hard, but the white is soft. The yolk is yellow, but the white is white. But all of God's eternal attributes are true of all the persons of the Trinity. So again, we don't play them off against each other. The only property that we can distinguish the persons of the Trinity with, in themselves, is their relationship to each other. Okay? So the Son is begotten from the Father. Light from light. True God from true God. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He's breathed out, so to speak, by the Father and the Son. But who can separate someone from their spirit? So he too is fully, truly God. True God from true God. The only difference between them in themselves is their relation to each other. Okay, That's how we distinguish the persons in the Trinity. Where they, they come from, so to speak, within each other. Their relation to each other. Now come now into action, into time and space, and these three take appropriate roles, the appropriate roles fitting to their relation to the others. So the Son is from the Father, and so the Father sends the Son into the world. The Son comes from the Father. It reflects what he is in himself. It takes on flesh. The Spirit is breathed out. So he's breathed out on all believers, and he dwells in them. So now, in time and space, they have different roles. The Son eternally has a body now, fully God and fully man. The Son died on the cross, not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit came down at Pentecost, not the Son or the Father. So we can distinguish them now in their roles in history. But, even then, just take those three examples. The Son became a man, and yet all the persons of the Trinity were involved in that, weren't they? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he was made the Father's Son. Jesus died on the cross, but according to the plan and purpose of the Father. We find out in Isaiah 53.10 or in Acts 2.23. And he offered himself by the Holy Spirit, according to Hebrews 9.14. The Spirit comes at Pentecost, but he is the Spirit of Christ, the gift of the Father. Through whom the Father, Son, and Spirit indwell us. So even as we have these distinct roles in history, it doesn't sort of sort it out then. Actually, all of them work together, don't they? So it's quite hard to separate them. 
As Gregory of Nazianzus, 4th century Cappadocian church father once said, this is what he said, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendour of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of the one, I think of the three. And when I think of the three, I think of the whole. And my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. But he keeps on going, I just can't get my head around at all. That was preached in Constantinople in uh, 381. Well, if you want something a bit more modern, Colin Buchanan, who's an Australian kids entertainer, uh, he rephrased that as, every time I think of the one, I think of the three. And every time I think of the three, I think of the one. Which helps us sort of hold those together. But as we think of the three, we mustn't think of them as just parts of a whole, as a shell of an egg or a ruddy yolk. Rather, we must stand in awe at the God who is one in essence and three in person, each one fully God. I hope that's helped you start to think about these things. I know that's an awful lot to take, um, but I hope that's helped you start thinking through these issues. It will take probably a lifetime to think these things through. But I thought a good way to finish would be to, to read um, through a creed, um, the Athanasian Creed, named after a guy called Athanasius of the 4th century, who staunchly defended the Trinity. Now, the creed wasn't written by Athanasius, probably, but it certainly reflects what he defended. Now, it's a long one, but we're just going to say an abridged version of the first half. And as we read through, see if you can pick up on some of the ideas that we've been talking about this evening. And then you can always go away and look at that and see what we've been seeing. So we'll remain seated, but we'll try and read this uh, together. Okay, here we go. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but there is but one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, 
but based on God's love. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so the Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or laws. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Well, there you go. That's the abridged version. <laughs> There's a whole other half, and I took out a lot of the, and the Father is this, and the Son is this, and the Spirit is this. But isn't it amazing? People have thought these things through, and uh, we get to share in that amazing thinking that they've done 